I had graduated from Harvard in 60. I was the kind of teacher's pet of a professor, Richard Alpert. I was boringly straight, repressed, sarcastic, not untypical Harvard. And I went and ended up writing a remarkably bad novel, Living in Paris. That summer of 61, Dick Alpert passed through Paris on his way to Copenhagen, where Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, and Aldous Huxley were presenting about the Harvard work up to that point, and we spent an evening together. And he was in wonderful shape. I knew him quite well. We'd actually shared a house the prior summer, um, and he was just wonderfully uh, in better shape. And he said, the greatest thing in the world has happened to me, and I want to share it with you. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty good. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is James Fadiman, known for his book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, and as a well-known proponent of microdosing. While a Harvard undergrad, he was a student of Ram Dass, then known as Richard Alpert. As a graduate student at Stanford University, he became a research assistant at Myron Stolaroff's famed International Foundation for Advanced Study, an early nonprofit that guided the uninitiated into the psychedelic experience and studied the outcomes. Fadiman was also one of the first teachers at Esalen, beginning in the fall of 1962 with his workshop The Expanding Vision, co-taught with Willis Harmon. Fadiman has continued a lifelong association with Esalen and with psychedelics, and has appeared in countless films as an authority on such matters, including 2013's Science and Sacraments and 2009's Inside LSD. Other books of his include Be Love Now, Essential Sufism, and The Other Side of Hate. Here's my conversation with James Fadiman. Well, cool. Thanks for taking some time out to, to chat. Well, it's a pleasure to see if I can dig back into those memories and add a few uh, things that you can't find because there are no documents. How did you get hooked up with, with Michael and, and Dick? And the, uh, did you start teaching in 1962? Right. If, uh, there's something in Upstart Spring where there's a list of the first seminars ever given. I'm one of those. Here, here's, here's my, my very clear memory is Willis and I did a seminar at Esalen. It was the third seminar that Esalen offered. It was the first seminar that anybody attended. So I'd like to think it was the first seminar. It was entirely on psychedelics. I had arrived at Stanford in 1961 and I had taken, was taking a course from Willis that course uh, that would be covered in the expanding vision. It was called, uh, I think, something like the human potential or kind of what's the best and highest that people can ascribe to. During that course, I had a, my major life-changing psychedelic experience. I believe we then went to Esalen, and he invited me, and we talked about psychedelic experience. One of the events during that weekend, which was somewhat tempestuous, is that after a probably Saturday night, several people, um, including a very powerful kind of evangelical black woman, suggested that we get together for a special session to help one of the participants. The participant was a young man clearly in emotional difficulty, um, awkward, um, almost stuttering, uh, quite unhappy. And a few of us, maybe eight or so, met in some 
um, secret part of Esalen, and this woman led us basically in a prayer and healing service for this young man. Nothing about psychedelics, but a lot about prayer and spirit and caring, holding all of us with our hands on him. And Sunday morning, um, he was a remarkably changed human being. He was basically sane and healthy and, and kind of uh, normal. So that was one of the remarkable kind of subtexts of that weekend, which is the yeah. general belief that altered states led to healing and happened in this very unusual way and uh, kind of hidden from Eslin because none of us knew what we were doing except perhaps this woman. In, I, I had graduated from Harvard in, in 60, and I was the kind of teacher's pet of a professor, Richard Alpert. None of us had any psychedelic, nothing, nothing like that, awareness of any sort. I was boringly kind of straight, repressed, sarcastic, not untypical Harvard. Um, kind of rested on intellect because I didn't have anything else developed. And I went and ended up um, traveling in Europe, living in Europe, writing a remarkably bad novel, Living in Paris. That um, summer of 61, Dick Alpert passed through Paris on his way to Copenhagen, where Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, and Aldous Huxley were presenting about the Harvard work up to that point to the World Congress of Psychologists. And Dick passed through Paris, partly to see me, partly to see Paris, and we spent an evening together. And he was in wonderful shape. I knew him quite well. We actually shared a house the prior summer. Um, and he was just wonderfully uh, in better shape. And he said, the greatest thing in the world has happened to me, and I want to share it with you. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty good. And then he reached into his pocket and took out a psychedelic, a, a little vial of psilocybin pills. And that freaked me out a little bit because I was, I was sufficiently straight that I didn't drink coffee. But I took one, and we sat there in a little cafe, and at some point I was aware of brighter colors and kind of the, you know, the beauty of things. But I was also aware that uh, as the people uh, behind me, you know, walking uh, on the street and other tables, that I was really very aware of what they were talking about, and it was distracting. And then it struck me that my French wasn't that good. I'd been living in Paris now eight months, and I was never able really to capture that kind of casual conversation that you can hear, you know, when people pass by. And I said, this is too much for me. And Richard said, this is really too much for me too. And I said, How, why? You're, you're not taking anything. He said, no, but it's my first time in Paris. <laughs> so we retreated to my fifth-floor walk-up apartment, and I spent the next few hours learning that my worldview uh, was somewhat limited. Mm. This was definitely not a mystical experience. This is what I would now call probably a kind of a psychotherapeutic-level dose of psilocybin, enough so that it shook the rafters of my belief system, but it didn't really... Uh, it opened me up to myself, to other people, to much closer feelings, to kind of psychodynamically healthier. And it also took away a basic belief, which is unless you had a whole lot of books next to you, you probably didn't know much. <laughs> At that time, was it possible to take um, pills? Were these designed by a pharmaceutical company? And was it these legal? were Sandoz. 
and actually, <laughs> I'm thinking about it. Yeah, that's right. This was Sandoz psilocybin. LSD came to the uh, Harvard group later through a not particularly um, healthy source. Um, and then I went off to Stanford Graduate School. I had two offers. One was to be inducted into the military and go to Vietnam, and the other was to go to graduate school. And I took very much the lesser of two I considered both evils because I was perfectly happy as a very uh, down-and-out bad novelist in Paris living literally. There was a book called How to Live on Europe on $5 a Day, and I was well under that. But I ended up graduate school and found in, in outside of psychology, which seemed insanely boring, this course by Willis Harmon, and then it led to a high-dose LSD session in which my world was forever transformed and was a kind of classic mystical experience. Mm -hmm. So it was after that that we came to Esalen. Right. And was there a connection with, uh, with Willis Harmon and, uh, and Michael, or was it the work that you were doing that kind of connected you to I think this, it was uh, connected because Willis clearly invited me along. You know, I was super junior partner. I was a first-year graduate student. And I noticed in the 62 catalog, it, it correctly says I'm a graduate student. In the 64 catalog, Esalen had wised up and just called uh, myself and Alan Seidel a psychology department because we were both graduate students. So I'm not sure. I think I must have met Michael that weekend. And Michael and I became terribly close. I just There was enormous rapport. When I got married at Esalen a couple of years later, at the dinner before the wedding, which was held in Monterey, uh, Michael was one of the guests. And, of course, we, we, he, Michael had agreed that we could use Esalen for the wedding. So I was married at Esalen, uh, and I have a, a kind of illuminated piece of paper, like a little medieval uh, miniature, that says Dorothy and James Fadiman have unlimited use of the baths you know, for this lifetime. And that was the present wow. signed by Michael and Richard Price. Oh my God, that's beautiful. That's just really cool. When you're teaching about psychedelics, are you making this kind of like public inquiry into psychedelics in 1962? What's the level of understanding amongst the people in your seminar? Very, very um, low. They had been basically reading things like Life magazine, and probably some of them had read Huxley's book. No one had any psychedelic experience. There was the yes. interest, certainly, because whatever, you know, whatever was out there in the media was certainly exciting. I think Cary Grant had perhaps gone public by then, but there was, there was no illegal LSD available, for example. And right. psilocybin was still a mysterious substance which grew in you know, the depths of Mexico and also had been synthesized by, by Sandoz. Now, on the other side... LSD was the most researched psychiatric drug in the world during those early 60s because when I started working at the Foundation for International Foundation for Advanced Study in Menlo Park, of which Willis Harmon was a kind of advisor and I was their psychology student, uh, I wrote Santos and said, hey, is there any information on LSD? And they sent me two volumes of the first thousand papers, and this was just the abstracts. So there was a very much a two-tiered world. One was, this was incredibly exciting, whatever it was, and the other is the public really didn't know much about it. Why did 
the general public in the early 1960s, why was it impossible for them to access the, the LSD? Oh, well, Sandoz was the manufacturer. Sandoz basically sent it to people who asked for it with the flimsiest of credentials because we know from uh, one of Don Latin's books that Andy Weil, who was an undergraduate journalist at Harvard, uh, wrote Sandoz and asked for some on some kind of Harvard stationery. Sandoz had the problem of they, they had this incredibly exciting drug and they couldn't figure out how to make money out of it. There's a little section in Hoffman's book when he quotes Sandoz as saying, Dear researcher, here is the LSD you asked for. Please tell us what you're using it for and how you're doing it. And by the way, we recommend you try it once first. That is remarkable. So they would give it to psychotherapists? who were Psychotherapists, who were... physicians, hospitals, animal researchers, you know, fish researchers. They, what they knew about LSD is it, it was the most powerful substance, molecule for molecule, that had ever been discovered that affected the human mind by a factor of a thousand or so. And it affected it in very powerful ways. Um, initially, they, because they, most people took it in a terrible set and setting and had relatively bad experiences, they felt it could be a, a mimic for psychosis, a psychotomimetic. And the notion was, therefore, psychiatrists should have it as part of their training so they would have some idea of the, the terribly bizarre inner world of mental illness. And then some people began to have good experiences, um, and that led to, well, that led to the, the people who gave it to Huxley, who, who had been working in Canada uh, at a mental hospital um, and had discovered that high doses in a nice setting led to transcendence and also greatly improved mental health. So some of the early positive work was done in psychotherapy in England and then also with alcoholics, uh, long-term kind of terrible alcoholics, meaning people who'd failed everything and whose livers were in danger and had basically nothing helped them and no therapy and no medication. And they had a 50% success rate in abstinence using LSD. Wasn't Bill W., the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, kind of a proponent of LSD? Uh, only after he took it. And <laughs> after he took it, he thought not only was he a proponent, but it should be available through every AA meeting in the country. The board of directors of AA said, are you fucking crazy? And <laughs> that ended that. Yeah, now, remember, people tend to forget that, that um, Bill Wilson's initial breakthrough his own transcendent experience where god came and saved him from being an alcoholic was when he was taking a a, a cure called the detura cure uh, detura which is also known as loco weed has mm. i think it's stramonium but i'm not sure but it's something that gives you a terrible terribly difficult trip and that nobody ever recommended it very much but that's what happened is he had it through a, a drug experience now, he developed AA and the rules and so forth, I believe, quite on his own. I want to ask you a little bit more. You, you, you mentioned that you were the, the teacher's pet of Albert. Yeah. What was, at the time, was the Harvard Psilocybin Project sort of up and running? No. No. When I left Harvard, Richard Alpert was a teacher in psychology, a teacher in education, and was also doing some clinical work, you know, in the Harvard clinical, whatever it was called. 
He was an up-and-coming, ambitious, young professor. Mm -hmm. uh, and he had, I believe, been very much befriended by Tim Leary, who was also an up-and-coming, um, smart, young professor, but somewhat farther out already, but had not had psychedelics. So this was uh, entirely kind of within the conventional Harvard uh, framework when I was an undergraduate. Right. It's quite, it's quite interesting how m rapidly things changed within oh, the course of a year or two. <laughs> well, as, as you may know in your own life or others, um, when you have something that changes your point of view or your worldview, the rest of your life has to kind of start to rearrange itself so that things make sense again. Just as when people, you know, when nice white kids went down south during the civil rights era, they came back changed because they'd had a number of very powerful emotional experiences that totally revised their, you know, their, their view of other people and themselves. And there's even a rumor that that's the purpose of undergraduate education is to make <laughs> these profound changes, but, you know, kind of slowly over a number of years. Psychedelics tend to do them quickly. And the, mm. the undergraduate that Dick Alpert gave um, psilocybin to that led to, that, that was uh, part of why he was fired, though I think they were looking for a reason, he said to the president of Harvard, I have learned more in my psychedelic experience than I have in my prior three years at Harvard. And uh, he was trying to make a point how beneficial it was, but if you want to look at it from the side of the president of harvard that's a pretty scary statement yes yes it is this it is and i'm sure that it was a scary statement for sort of middle-class mainstream america to hear about right. psychedelics the psychedelic experience made people very unwilling to do things like go to vietnam as well as support war in general and they questioned conventional education and they question conventional um, responsibilities and jobs and that was terrifying to the mainstream of America and correctly so. You mentioned earlier that you became the research psychologist at the International Foundation for Advanced Study. Could yep. you talk a little bit about what that was? Well the the International Foundation for Advanced Studies with a little suite of offices above a beauty parlor in Menlo Park. It had like two treatment, if you imagine it, a kind of dumbbell-shaped suite with two treatment rooms at each end and some offices in between. And the treatment rooms had been fitted out like very attractive living rooms. This was the what uh, has been called the Hubbard Method, which was a, an attractive living room with flowers and very high-end music equipment, couches, you know, so this was a very and beautiful art. So this is where people were given LSD. They were given LSD under an investigational uh, drug exemption from the federal government. The federal government said, you are free to give LSD in your setting, and a little bit like, like Sandoz, and kind of let us know what you're doing. So they set up as a clinic where people paid a fee. They were first uh, interviewed by a, a psychoanalyst, Charles Savage, who had been working with psychedelics since the 50s. And if he felt that they were stable enough, they were then allowed to have uh, some pre-therapeutic kind of pre training 
um, looking at what their motives were and what they wanted, making a connection with the therapist. Then they were given one high-dose psychedelic experience, approximately 400 micrograms of LSD being high. And then there was after, I guess we now call it integration, starting one day after and one week after and one month after and I think six months after. And that was what this clinic did. And as it accumulated cases and results, um, it wrote some papers. And the first paper was called The Psychedelic Experience, um, written for the Journal of Neuropsychology, or maybe probably neuropsychiatry. And it had a, a, a curious side. I was on board as their, quote, psychologist, knowing very little. And Willis Harmon basically wrote the manuscript, and it was filled with these reports of mystical experiences. Now, this was now the beginning of fall of 61, and I still had not, I just had psilocybin. So I carefully took all the mystical bits out of the paper, and when Willis said, why did I do that? I said, because nobody's going to really, you know, that, that's basically not going to, to your credit, nobody's going to go for that. Hmm. And he said, okay. And then he made a little appendix of all the mystical quotes. And I said, what are you going to do with that? He said, well, I'm just going to show that to a few friends. And he submitted the article to the Journal of Neuropsychiatry with the appendix, and it was published. And, and the reason I tell you that, it, it kind of says that's where the balance was, that until I had my transcendental experience, I just found that, that psychedelics were really, really, really important but only because they made me more of a human being, not because they expanded my awareness beyond the, the personality or the self. Once that occurred, that was a giant shift. Did you have contact with the founder of the, the foundation, Myron Stolaroff, when you were there? Oh, yeah. No, Myron was around. Myron was not, you know, the distant founder. We were all, Myron was about the same age as Willis, and they had been in a, a spiritual group which used a book called Jesus' Teacher, which is the teachings of Jesus independent of any religious connotations. And that group had made a connection with, somehow with Al Hubbard, and that group also for a period of time prior to the foundation, would have one member per month, I believe, take LSD, and the rest of the group would sit around and kind of watch. So, so yes, I saw a lot of Myron, and I'm, uh, we were friends, and I'm friends with his son. And uh, Myron was the founder and the financial backing of the foundation from 1961 until it closed in 1966 after the government took away the drug exemption. So the, eventually the government... It's an interesting period, basically, what you're kind of outlining for me is this sort yeah. of early 1960s to 1966 where it right. is it's legal. So Myron, for right. example, was very uncomfortable with Eslam, um, as was Al Hubbard. Um, Willis and I felt quite differently because both Myron and Al Hubbard were really trying to work inside the government and inside the rules and inside the laws to, to move this into mental health. Not necessarily for you didn't have to be crazy to use it, but you did get improved mental health. And 
I became much more kind of culturally dissident, I guess, both against the war and against psychology itself. Uh, I later went on to help found transpersonal psychology. Mm. Now, why um, were they opposed to, uh, to Esalen's point of view around psychedelics? Well, they weren't opposed. Well, they were opposed to Esalen because Esalen was a, a liberated place with lots of sex and lots of nudity and lots of radical thinking quite beyond the realm of psychedelics. And they were just made very uncomfortable by it. Just as somewhat years later, Carl Rogers was uncomfortable with Esalen, uh, just because of his own very, very straight background as a human mm-hmm. being, not, as a, not in terms of his ideas. While Maslow loved it. And when you were at Esalen in, let's say, 62, 63, 64, was there this spirit of a, like a radicalism, uh, a, an openness? Yeah. Well, this was the radicalism... The radicalism of Dick Price on the psychodynamic level, with Gestalt on the one hand, um, and countergroups, um, these were very disruptive weekends. And Michael, who was more from a, a kind of intellectual, philosophical openness, you know, so Michael would have uh, B.F. Skinner come for the weekend because Michael wanted to know what he had to say. And the, the ethos of Esalen, now, you know, you live in the area, the ethos, just the ethos of the baths, of seeing a bunch of people naked, was culturally quite radical. And I have several memories of taking someone down to the baths, knowing full well that this was going to be very, very, um, not upsetting, but kind of opening. And I remember one case in particular, someone then went back up to the bath from the baths and didn't sleep all night. Just had kind of enormous emotional rushes at what they had just experienced, which is not only seeing other people nude, but being one of them. <laughs> and I know right. that's hard to get that that's exciting, okay? I remember uh, once having um, a massage. At that point, the, uh, there were little massage rooms between the, the men's and women's sides. And again, there were men's and women's sides, though I'm not sure how that whether we, how, how much that was honored. Um, and that actually might have been later that there were men's and women's sides. But I remember after the massage, I was turned on to my masseuse, and, uh, and we made love. And I don't think it mattered a great deal to either of us. So that was a kind of um, sexual freedom that was quite common in the 60s. And if you were not part of it, you were sure that, that there had to be some reason you were not part of it. And one way would be that it was wrong. Instead of the more obvious way is that you didn't know how to get in. Right. And, and what was your sense when you were there, you were teaching about psychedelics, and I, I assume a, a rather academic way, was there the sense, at least later, maybe in the, as the mid-60s came around, that people wanted to experiment outside of the classroom experientially? Well, I don't know that I was ever um, talking about it, quote, academically, because it was experiential mm. for me. Mm-hmm. So it was more the question of what do you do with this experience? And that was, that was the, the, the question was much more, um, particularly as people began to have more and more experience, is really 
questions of set and setting and doing it safely and doing it correctly and what were your goals. Now, for instance, the idea of having sex on high-dose psychedelics to me was, um, was appalling, <laughs> okay? Because that, what I knew from that is that that brought you down back into your body and limited your experience. So I, I moved from, without changing my position at all, I moved from being very far out to being seen as relatively conservative within a couple of years. Very interesting. And, and I think one of the distinctions, and it's, it's very much, you, you reminded me by sending those wonderful pages, there was the weekend of existentialism and mysticism, and led by James Fadden and Alan Seidel, and we were actually uh, roommates, housemates, there was four of us, and Sidney Wall, who was a clinical psychologist at the VA, and a lovely, lovely person. We found through the weekend that there was a very strong distinction between the two positions, that they were not kind of flavors of ice cream that were quite similar. And what we realized as the weekend went on is that the psychedelic position was incredibly optimistic, incredibly positive. It uh, centered on the universality of the energy described as love, but not at all limited to love with human beings, but that literally the universe ran on that and that there was the high possibility that you were neither born nor died that you were just passing through and that you could make changes in the world that were incredibly beneficial and that nature was wonderful the existentialists as we noted during the weekend were deeply concerned with angst and mm -hmm. dread mm -hmm. and fear um, and what we even now call existential you know crisis and what i got out of that weekend was the deep um, negativity and pessimism and concern about the dark side of human behavior that existentialism explored and that psychedelics really didn't and that was that was a very uh, important shift in my understanding of uh, the kind of intellectual positions of, of both points of view that they were not overlapping in they were overlapped far far less than I would have imagined uh, when the weekend began I'm I'm trying I'm working on some pieces where I'm trying to draw uh, a parallel or uh, mm -hmm. trying to weave the psychedelic experience and the human potential movement, trying to weave them together and see how one influenced the other. And you, you mentioned kind of glancingly the work of Gestalt, the work of Pearls, and, and sort of the group work and counter work. In your opinion, did psychedelics influence the group work at Esalen in any way? It would, well, um, psychedelics, you see, psychedelics don't have an ideology. You know, any more than um, ice cream has an ideology. People like ice cream, people don't like ice cream, but nobody, nobody kind of makes a political statement about it. Nobody's bad who doesn't like it or, or hopelessly de you know, de uh, depraved if they do. Because psychedelic basically is experiential at the level where concepts aren't very useful. Any more than, a, you know, when you look at a sunset, you don't apply concepts. And as that, it allowed people, their, whatever their inner development was, and they would be better at what they were doing. 
that was probably our belief system, at least in the psychedelic group. I mean, I, for instance, did my Stanford dissertation about the effectiveness of LSD therapy at the foundation. Um, trust me, it's a dull dissertation. But that was because I was capable of doing a dull dissertation very consciously. And I actually wrote it in about six weeks. Now, given Stanford, it took me two years to get a committee because they were scared. So, so the, in terms of what you're talking about, in terms of what you're writing, uh, it's fair to say that, that LSD can be seen as the um, some of the fuel that led to a lot of different things being, or the fertilizer that led to a lot of different things growing. Right. And that would include the anti-war movement, the ecology movement, the feminist movement, social justice, and then from the Esalen point of view, certainly encounter and gestalt. My, I mean, I don't think any interview with you would be complete without touching upon microdosing because it's become such a large sure. part of psychedelic culture in the last several yeah. years. Now, microdosing is only my last 10 years. I've been, and I kind of find that this at least ironic or at least humorous, um, which is watch out what you are against because you'll end up doing it. Um, mm. I've been... A, total passionate advocate of high doses uh, and mystical experience for, I don't know, 40 years. Mm. Like, why would you bother taking psychedelics to go to a concert and watch all the lights get flickery? <laughs> okay, which is, you know, how, how, how um, snotty and deprecating that, that sounds to me, even yeah. when I say it. But, but <laughs> I was basically saying, you guys are missing really what's invaluable. It's kind of as if you go to Paris, but you bring your own food, as, uh, as some English people did. I remember, that's what it comes to. I remember someone saying, well, when we visited Paris, we brought bread with us. Mm. <laughs> so I was, I was a kind of advocate for high dose, but guided, because high dose, not guided, can get you in serious trouble. And then I began to develop an interest in microdosing, which has no psychedelic effects, but is remarkable in terms of alleviating depression and what Bob just called enhancing human wellness. And it's quite different, and it's taken my, my world in a very different turn. And again, it's rather low in ideology because not much happens. You know, it's people feel better. I was curious about where you came out on the question of democratization so there's this idea that, that Huxley was not in line with the Leary and Ken Kesey kind of ideology of democratization of psychedelics. And right. you obviously were part of the conversation when it became everyone was doing them. And I was wondering where, where you came out, what you thought about that. Uh, well, uh, yeah, in the early days, um, Huxley basically felt it should be for people like him who had a deep experience and vocabulary that would allow you to explain and to hold in your mind what you got. And Tim had a, Tim had a, not a democratization, but a, a hatred of hierarchy. So Tim didn't like that anybody had power over anybody. Tim was, after all, thrown out of West Point, the purest hierarchical organization in the Western world, and always had the feeling that everyone is equal whether they have any way of showing that or not. So you have these two ideologies, both of them taking psychedelics. And 
democratization obviously won out because the availability of LSD predominantly came through the younger culture, where people were not yet <coughs> separated into intellectuals and, and other people. Right. And what we learned in our a kind of objective position is we found that when you gave people high doses, um, good setting, good therapists, that people who had some kind of prior vocabulary, be it Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, or anything like that, did better. They were able to hold on to more of what they... I mean, when I say classic mystical experience, you kind of know what I mean. And what that says is, oh yeah, he's talking cross, across different religious traditions. He's not saying that he saw Christ or that he became one with Allah or that he realized that he was one with the Buddha. He's saying classical mystical experience covers all those as well as okay. shamanism yeah. and so forth. Mm. So what we found, and it's kind of the Huxley point of view, is if you were better able to take it in, big surprise, you took it in better. So in my point of view, from a, I'm just pragmatic, which is it was useful. Sometimes it was very useful to give people vocabulary before the experience. I mean, what was your point of view experientially as you went through 1967, Summer of Love, and 68, 69, sort of the apex and, and crash of, uh, as, so to speak, of the hippie movement with everyone doing this? Well, it was, a, it was, I was, I was, I'd done everything legally. And so when the government said you had to stop, I stopped. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, it's kind of like saying, well, the, you know, the, the, the nightclub is closed, but we're going to go to Al's house. And I would say, well, well the nightclub's closed. I guess we have to go home. <laughs> and I well, never you, knew I, what happened at Al's house. In some senses, were you worried about the, the culture as it sort of... Well, I was also didn't... connected peripherally to the Kesey world. Oh. Who, who never considered the law one way or another and had... What, now, what, what was the, the connection there? Well, Ken Kesey was my wife's girlfriend. I mean, oh. my, Dorothy was his, his girlfriend. So that's how I met the Kesey people. Oh, how interesting. And they liked me because in their world where strangeness um, gave you a certain amount of credibility, I not only was straight, but I did legal LSD research. And they looked at me, you know, when you've, um, you know, you're at a party and someone says, you see that guy over there, you know, he kind of looks like nothing. But if you give him a light bulb, he can bite into it and, and chew the glass. <laughs> and you think, wow, he's really interesting. So I was kind of like that. Had, had, is it true that Ken Kesey was one of, he had been experimented upon? In, oh, yeah. No, the, he was experimented upon at the Palo Alto Veterans Hospital under a research project with Dr. Leo Hollister, who was either overtly or covertly funded by the CIA. And there's a, now finally, there's a book called Poisoner in Chief about a man named, I think, Lou Gottlieb, who undertook all of the CIA um, drug experiments of all sorts, from unbelievably horrible to running LSE research. And one of his research projects, for instance, was running a whorehouse in San Francisco with two-way glass. People would come in, get LSD without being told, and spend time with the girls, and behind the, the, the mirror in the bedroom was this guy taking notes. Uh, wow. I wrote a novel about it. 
the other side of hate, H-A-I-G-H-T. I wrote a novel about that period. I mean, that was part of what went on. So, that's, that's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, so Kesey was a different... The way I see it is Tim Leary gets a, a lot of credit for making it, you know, for stopping all the research and ending the period of, of Summer of Love and so forth, and Kesey doesn't get enough credit. But mm-hmm. both of them were major public cultural disruptors that scared everybody else. I was a little to the side of it. I mean, I had married. I had. I, I, I went from California to Brandeis and taught for a year when, when Maslow was taking a sabbatical. I helped found a commune in New Mexico, a quiet little commune that still exists. So I, I didn't take great personal cultural risks. And I also use psychedelics very seldom because my training was if you take a high dose, it takes you at least a year to integrate it. And we actually did research that, that showed that. So I was this, as I say, I moved from this, you know, this radical who used psychedelics when no one did to this conservative who used them seldom when people were using them quite a lot. And now you've become the... And now I'm the kind guru, of Mr. Microgram. of 15 micrograms. Or <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's great. I have, I have so much wonderful material to, to work with. Thanks for taking oh, great. The, great. the time to, to go through this with me. I, I so appreciate it. Well, I'm really glad that you feel you got what you wanted. And it was a pleasure to, to kind of rethink it through, you know, through your questions, which I liked. And I will tell you that um, it's my birthday. <laughs> That's even better. Thank you for taking the time out on your birthday. So, yes, yeah, so you're my time out because I'm actually spending the day without anyone. Oh, I kind of forgot when I made the date with Sam, and I know he said Thursday <laughs> would be okay too, but hey, let's just do it. And I really, really liked seeing those, um, those old programs and recognizing what we were all doing, which was fumbling around trying to... George Leonard called it very nicely, human potential movement. And there's a lot of moving pieces in it. Thanks for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Terry Gilby and Michelle Broderick. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions. 